Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. I invite you to turn to John chapter 8 this morning, and we're going to look at verses 48 to 59. We're starting a new series. And in case you haven't figured out what it is, we're going to be looking at the I am statements that Jesus made about himself in the New Testament. So I'll give you the time to turn there, John chapter 8, verses 48 to 59. There's a book called Reimagining the Way That You Relate to God. And in it, uh, they talk about a test that Northern Seminary professor Scott McKnight gave his students every semester on the first day of his Jesus of Nazareth class when he taught at North Park University. And this is the way that the test began. It began with a series of questions about what students think Jesus is like. So some would include something like this. Is Jesus moody? That's a real question, by the way. Is he, is he moody? Does Jesus get nervous? Is he the, the party of the life or is he an introvert? I'll let y'all answer that one for yourselves. Uh, The 24 questions are then followed by a second set with slightly altered language in which the students answer questions about their own personalities. Now here's what they've done because McKnight is not the only one that has actually given this test, but the results have actually proven to be really consistent. Um, The results show that everyone thinks that Jesus is just like them. Isn't that interesting? Is he an extrovert? All the extroverts were like, yeah, he is. Is he an introvert? And all the introverts were like, absolutely he is. Strangely, Jesus looks just like them. And here's what McKnight went on to say. He said, the test results also suggest that even though we like to think we're becoming more like Jesus, the reverse is probably more the case. We try to make Jesus like ourselves. Can I just throw this out there on the front end? We don't need to do that. I mean, I don't need Jesus to be like me. That would be a huge mistake. That would be a huge mistake. Voltaire once said this. He said, in the beginning, God created man in his own image, and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. (laughs) And man, is he spot on. Now, what that means is, is that you're going to be invited to consider the ways in which you make God into your image today. But here's the bottom line. Any picture of God that we make, it's going to fall short. It doesn't mean that all of our beliefs are inaccurate, but boy, they're certainly not exhaustive. Is that fair? We've only, I came to Jesus when I was 11 years old, and I feel like even to this day, I'm kind of only tapping things on what I can know about him. And this is why we need God to tell us who he is. It's important. One of the ways God communicates who he is comes through the names that he reveals about himself in scripture. And most of the names that God reveals of himself were actually given in situations. Like it wasn't left in the abstract. It was in specific situations that people were going through. And then as people were going through it, they understood the meaning of God's name for them. So Jesus, by the way, did the exact same thing. You find God revealing himself in the Old Testament. And then Jesus does the exact same thing when you look in the New Testament. 
That's why we're looking in John chapter eight. It's helping us to set the stage for all the I am statements that Jesus made about himself when he was walking among us. A little bit of background just so that you can understand it. The time that he's talking here in John chapter eight came at the time what was called the Feast of Tabernacles for those of you that are note takers. And this happened uh, five days after the Day of Atonement and at the same time that the fall harvest had just been completed. Now you may go, that's all great. But those are two big things. You know, so the Day of Atonement was the time where you'd have the high priest go into the temple and they would, they would go before God for the atonement of the sins of the people. That's no small matter. That was really important. But they also had the Harvest Festival. And it, it may not matter to you, but you know, most of you are not farmers. But if you were a farmer, like most of them were, it really mattered to you because you would bring the harvest in and it was a time where you said, thank you, God, for everything that you provided for us. So to speak, they just kind of stopped everything that they were doing to celebrate the goodness and the provision of God for them right then. But not just right then, it was also a time where they remembered his goodness and his provision for them when they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, every night during the Feast of Tabernacles, there was something that they did. And it's a little bit hard for us to kind of picture this because, you know, we have street lights and everything kind of glows here. Not so much back then, right? I mean, when the sun went down, it got really, really dark. And so in the Feast of Tabernacles, what they would do at night and, and, and uh, to celebrate the festival, they did what was called the Temple Light Celebration. And it took, court and it took place in the court of the temple and what they would do is they would glow these lights around the temple to symbolize God's glory coming down in the past and to express the prayers and the hopes of his glory coming down again in the Messiah that they were looking for. Isn't that a beautiful picture? I mean, imagine it being pitch black and then this light just shows up. His glory revealed but we're looking for him to reveal his glory again. So all this crowd has kind of descended down and they're walking around in the Feast of Tabernacles and they're celebrating all of these great things. You know who else was walking around in the crowd? A guy named Jesus was walking around in the crowd. And he said some stuff. And it didn't necessarily go well with the religious leaders of his day. Jesus had a way, you know? He just had a way. So all these people are around. And then Jesus is saying things like this. If you believe me, you'll never die. And then the religious leaders get wind of this. And they're like, excuse me? And this is where we pick up in John chapter 8, verse 48. Because they felt like they needed to say something back to Jesus. By the way, high recommendation. Don't do that. Don't, you're not going to win. You can try. You're going to lose every time. Here's what they said. The Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and demon possessed? Now, how many of you, just how many of you would go, yep, that's me. <laughs> Do you catch that they're just being a little snarky here? Notice what they're doing. There are a couple of things that they're doing when they, when they say, hey, aren't you a Samaritan? One, they're just flat getting that wrong. But they're also, they're, 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 they're being highly derogatory and disrespectful to him because the Samaritans weren't like the, the pure blood Jews. They were the half-bloods. Right? And so Jews could not stand these people. Uh, there, was, there was this contention here. They butted heads with these people. Oh, aren't you one of them? Well, the answer is no. Well, how about this? Aren't you demon possessed? And Jesus, what's Jesus going to say? Sure am. Uh, come on. 
Why do you think they're saying things like this? Why? And the answer is, is if they can control the way that everybody sees him, then they can lessen the impact of what this guy is saying to them. This guy's a Samaritan. This guy's demon. Well, who wants to listen to demon possessed people? Yeah, that would be another don't do it, right? So that's what they said. Aren't we right? And so they asked a question and Jesus gave an answer. Good for him. In verse 49, I am not possessed by a demon. I'm glad he said that. But I honor my father and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. Now, this should catch you just so you know before we read on. This, this phrase in verse 50, I'm not seeking glory for myself. You remember what's going on? Feast of Tabernacles, a time when God had descended and revealed his glory and they're remembering that. It's a time where they're looking ahead where God would reveal him, himself again in the Messiah and reveal his glory. And here Jesus is using, I'm not seeking the glory for myself. You've been looking for this. I'm not seeking it for myself. You've been looking. That's what he's saying. And at this, because they can't be quiet. Do you know anybody like that? They can't just be like, hey, this is a good day. He's here. Here's what they say. Well, now we know you're demon possessed. I mean, Abraham died and so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. And here's what they're getting at here. There's only one that can say something like that. And that's God himself. So it's like they're getting it. They just won't accept it. They get it. They just won't accept it. And then they go on to say, are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. I mean, who do you think you are? And I, I want to throw this out there. If you don't want an answer to a question, don't ask it. Don't. In your marriage, if you don't want an answer to a question, don't ask it. If you ask it, you ask for it. Well, so did they. And Jesus takes a sip of water. I'm just kidding. He didn't do that. But here's what he says. Verse 54. If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, you catch the dig there? You're claiming a lot of stuff. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you don't know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I'd be a liar to you, but I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and he was glad. And they can't quit. You're not even 50 years old, they said to him, and you've seen Abraham. I mean, Abraham's like thousands of years ago, right? No, you're not even hitting, you're not even broke in yet. But you want to tell us that you saw him? Jesus isn't done. He says, very truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. And at this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. He's shifty Jesus right now. So they're looking for the stones, and they turn around like, where's he at? And it's like, he's gone. Here's the thing. A lot going on in here, but you can tell by their reaction, they knew exactly what he was saying about himself. Because when Jesus said, I am, he was taking the language that God had used about himself 
when he was talking to Moses in Exodus chapter three in the burning bush. They knew what he was saying. Now, he didn't walk up and say, hello, I'm Jesus, the son of God. Instead, he walks up and he uses language they understand. Who are you? I am. That's who I am. Let me go back to Exodus chapter three, just so you can kind of get why this is so profound for them. If you were to look in verses 13 and 14, here's kind of the way the story goes. Moses is having this interaction with God. God is going to ask him to do something that's, that's, that's really profound. It's going to come at a high cost. And Moses says to God, suppose that I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. By the way, Moses is saying they're going, I think they're going to be suspicious. <laughs> right? I mean, how many people come up and say, God has, God has sent me to you. Well, you're asking me to do the same thing. So what is it that's going to make them believe that you sent me and that I'm not a shyster, that I'm not one of the fake ones? Like, what, what's it going to be? So the God of your father, so suppose that. And they asked me, what's his name? And he goes, what do I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And this is what you're to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. Now, how many of you would think right then, oh, great. That's all that we were, it's like the secret handshake. All you have to do is say, I am, and then we know it's the real thing. Moses is still like, say, I am sent me. Here, here's what this means on, on the one hand. It means that God is who he is, even if that isn't who you want him to be. But he's also saying quite a lot more. There are different ways that Old Testament scholars translate this moment in the life of Moses. Here's one of those. When he says, I am, you could translate it like this. I am here with you. I'll be with you. Now think about that one for a second. I'm going to ask you to deliver my people out of bondage from Egypt. I'm asking you to do it. Deliver them out. Well, what credibility am I going to have? And he says, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. Let's imagine for a second that you play basketball. And uh, let's go back in the day just to make this, this more fun. You're, you're playing basketball. And then this guy named Michael Jordan walks up. And he says, hey, you know what? I'm going to be on your team. How many of you, would, and right in that moment, would think, you know what? I feel a whole lot better about the odds we're going to win this game. Do I have any takers? I mean, because I would feel, actually, I'd feel pretty great. Because what I would do is inbound the ball to him, and then I'd just run down the court and let him do his thing and score. I'd just stay out of the way at that point. That's this moment for Moses. I'm with you. I'm on your team. That's one way to translate this. Here's another way of translating it. I will be who I will be. Now, how many of you would feel good about that? I'll be who I will be. What does that even mean? The answer is this. It means I will reveal who I am through the things that I'm about to do for you. Some, sometimes it's hard to understand things when somebody's explaining it, and it makes a whole lot more sense when they just show it. You will know who I am through what I'm about to do. Now, what he was about to do wasn't easy, people, because you have this consistent conflict between Moses and the Pharaoh. It's not like Moses walks in, he goes, let my people go. And the Pharaoh goes, I was waiting for the code word. And so out you go. 
No, I mean, he put up a fight the whole way. He was not gonna let this go. You can expect the same thing when it comes to whatever it is that you're looking at. And yet, God is saying, I'm with you. And with what you're going through, you're going to be learning some things about me. He said it to Moses, and I'm convinced he's saying it to you today. So when he says, I am, this is another, another thing that he's meaning. This is a reference to him being eternal. It's a reference that time does not limit him. Space does not limit him. You will not limit him. It won't happen. So around the third century BC, out of their reverence for the command, you shall not take the Lord your God in vain, which you find in Exodus chapter 20, verse seven, Jewish tradition held that the word Yahweh, it was sacred. And the only time that they would actually utter that sacred name was on the day of atonement by the high priest. That was it. The rest of the time, it was to be honored and revered. It was to be unspoken, but they still wanted to call out on the name of God. And so they did. They had a word. They would call out Jehovah, who is with us. And it appears as a root for a number of things that God would reveal to them in their experience as they walked with him. Jehovah Elohim, the God who made the heavens and the earth in Genesis 2-4. He's with us today. Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides in Genesis chapter 22, verse 14, and he provides today. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals you. This is in Exodus 15, 26, and he still heals people today. Broken souls, broken bodies. Jehovah Nissi, the Lord who is your victor and gives you victory. This is in Exodus chapter 17, verse 15. He's still giving victory today. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord sends his peace. He said this to the people in Judges chapter 6, verse 24, and today he still gives his peace. You think about God, the creator of everything, he wants to, in this moment with Moses, to foster a close relationship with the people that he made, and he wants to foster a close relationship with you right now, right now. So instead of being aloof and distant, he chose to reveal himself. He spoke, and he said, this is who I am. It's not a mystery, I'm telling you. And giving them his true name was an act of intimacy as he gave it to Moses so that he can know him. You can see why this would matter to Moses, can't you? I mean, imagine that God's coming, he's like, there's something that I want you to do. Well, who's on my team? I'm on your team. That would bring me great comfort. He's about to be asked to lead an entire people group out of slavery. So God says, this is me, this is me. And one of the ways that he reveals himself to Moses is in that moment, he says, and now I want you to take off your shoes. Take your shoes off. Why would he do something like that? And part of the answer, because there's a lot going on in that moment, but part of the answer is, is this is a holy and sacred space and a holy and sacred moment. Take your shoes off. Now, the sacredness of God had been lost on his people. They've been in captivity for a long time, right? The reverence to God, the holiness of God, the otherness of God, that had been lost on his people. And frankly, we'd lose it too. But God says, we're not losing it in this moment. Take your shoes off before you look at me. Take your shoes off before you approach. And it also reminds Moses of his limitations. With everything that you're about to go do, friend, you're going to need me. So remember this moment. And when Moses responds to him, when he does what he asks, the text says that God then revealed the next plans that he had for Moses' life. Moses listened, Moses did, and then God revealed. And by the way, when God revealed, Moses wasn't interested. How about that? 
It's like, would you speak? You bet. Here you go. And Moses was like, well, I didn't want to say that. How many of you have done that before? I'll be honest with you, I did it. Um, I did not want to be a pastor, yet here we are. Uh, I gave God two choices. I said, law or medicine? You take your pick. I'll even lead Bible studies, you know? It's not like I hated God. I just didn't want to do ministry. I didn't. 12 years old, sitting in my home church, the first Baptist church in Mineola, Texas, or anybody that knows Northeast Texas, it's where I was, sitting next to my mom that we now lovingly call Nana. And I said, I don't know what I'll be, but I'm going to grow up. But I know what I don't want to be. And I pointed at the pastor, that poor guy. I don't want to be him. Well, here we are. <laughs> All these years later, God's still laughing. Moses had the exact same reaction. I hear what you're asking me to do. I, mm. And then he came up with an excuse. I'm going to have to go before the Pharaoh. And I'm going to have to speak. And I've got a speech impediment. I'm just not the guy. How many of you have done something like that? You know, it, it's not like you're wondering, what do you want from me? It's you already have all of the excuses built in on why you're not going to do it. Well, we're a lot like these people, aren't we? We just are. And that's in spite of a profound religious experience that he's having. But God doesn't give up. I, I, want, you to, I want you to think about this because it was the experience of God that really cha ultimately changed everything for Moses. And when you look in John chapter 8, Jesus is trying to speak to these people. He's trying to help them. You want to know God? Look. Like, look. Think of some of the names that we give to people. Some of those on the positive side, you might say, this person is kind. This person is generous. This person is loving. On the negative side, we won't worry about that so much. But you remember how it is that they describe Jesus? Samaritan and demon-possessed. They just went right for it. They just went right for it. They wanted to control how everybody else was seeing him. Racial slurs, demon possession. These people were on fire. But I, I think that there's some ways, if we're not careful, there's some ways that we can be just like the religious leaders that Jesus was talking to in John chapter 8. And I just want to throw a couple of things out in front of you today. And this is the first. They denied who Jesus is, and we often do too. They denied who Jesus is, and we often do too. And I'm, by we, I'm also talking to the church. We do too. There are some surveys that have been done. The Barna Group surveyed Americans. 44% uh, do not believe or aren't sure that Jesus is divine. Oh, wait a second. Those were people that also go to church. 44%. They surveyed the millennials, the most studied generation, I think, of all time. <laughs> then they do studies of the studies of the millennials. Anywho, 48% of millennials do not believe that Jesus is God. 46% of the people that they surveyed believe Jesus committed sins while he was on the earth. You think people are missing Jesus a little bit? Because I just wanted you to get a flavor of it. But you go, well, wait a second. You, you said that we can deny Jesus just like the religious leaders did. Well, how do I do that? Because I believe he's divine. I believe he died on the cross. I believe he rose from the dead. That's great. I think you're probably doing it in a different way. And it's probably similar to the way that I do it. Anytime I deny his authority over my life, I'm not any different than these people. It's no different. I'll give you every place except for the ones I'm telling you you can't have. I'm no different. I'm not. I like the way that Tim Keller said it. If your God never disagrees with you, you might be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. 
It's the strangest thing. I was just giving some thought to it, and God thinks everything that I think. (laughs) You might want to rethink it. You just might want to rethink it. Here's another thing. If we're not careful, we think we know God when in fact we don't. Did you catch this in John chapter 8? Who were the people that he was talking to? The religious leaders, the churchgoers. You have this, this warning in the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's like, whoa, we did stuff. And Jesus says, I don't know you. I don't know you. The question that he's getting at there is not what have you done, but do you know him? Do you know him? And that's a completely different question. For these people in John chapter 8, you literally have the incarnated Christ standing in front of them, saying the glory of God has been revealed. I'm standing in front of you. The Father testifies to this, and they're like, yeah, we don't. He can be right in front of us, and we miss it. Be careful. If you are not careful, you might think that you know God, and you don't. That's one of the ways we can be like these people. Here's more. These experiences where God reveals himself, this is the good part. Those are life changers. How many of you would want a burning bush moment in your life? By the way, consider what you're asking for when you ask for it. Moses is a little shaky, right? It's a little scary. But how many of you would want it? How many of you would want to see God like that? How many of you want to have an experience of God like that? Thomas Aquinas had one. I don't know if you know this. Thomas Aquinas is considered the theologian of the Catholic Church. He was a brilliant guy. But this is what was said. There's a work called The Lives of Saints, and this is the way they described it. It said, on the feast of St. Nicholas in 1273, St. Thomas Aquinas was celebrating Mass when he received a revelation that so affected him that he wrote and dictated no more. He stopped. He left his great work, the Summa Theologia, unfinished. To Brother Reginald, which, by the way, was, was his, uh, basically his secretary and one of his best friends, uh, to Brother Reginald's expostulations, they said, he replied, this was Aquinas, he said, the end of my labor has come. All that I've written appears to be as so much straw after everything that God has revealed to me. And then three months later, he, die, he dies. Never finished it. He literally put his pen down. And all because of the power of the depth of the experience of God that he had. He said, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to tell you about it. I don't know what to say. It reminds me of another story. It's a little bit closer to home. It's a book called Grace Plus Nothing. It was written by a guy named Jeff Harkin. And there's a section of this book that I just wanted to share with you. It's called The Bathtub Revival. And there's a story behind it so that you can understand what that means but I just wanted to share a story with you. Here's what he said. He said, in 1968, I almost died. I was 28 years old. After I was released from the hospital, he said, and I'd been there for more than three months. I had to spend three hours per day soaking in my bathtub to help heal an incision that had abscessed and was literally wide open. I weighed about 112 pounds. I couldn't work. And the future for me looked really dark. It was the darkest period of my entire life. And yet it was during that very period that God was revealing his grace to me. And I was learning that he's my righteousness. So one day as I was sitting in the tub, 
bored to tears, and by the way, totally fair. How many of you could sit in a tub for three hours? It, hands just went up, that was rhetorical. <laughs> Come on, people. Thanks for ruining the point. So one day as I was sitting in the tub, bored to tears and open to God, the Lord suddenly took over. And I was thinking about his name, I am. Like we just read in John 8, 58. An interesting question came to my mind. So I asked him, well, since your name is I am, where, what are you, Lord? And his answer to my question began to flow instantly. He said, in my mind, not audibly. And he made it clear to me that he was going to reveal his nature to me, specifically in terms of his righteousness for me. The, the list of all that God is for me lasted a minimum of five minutes. And in all of my years of study, I've never been able to duplicate it with a list of my own that lasts even three minutes. And that's how I know it was God and not merely an origination of my mind. And not only that, he said, I was also greatly strengthened and encouraged. And that was how I knew it wasn't Satan. He said, so here was the partial list that God spoke to me. He said, I'm your friend. I'm your savior. I'm your Lord. I'm your healer, I'm your comforter, I'm your righteousness, I'm your supply, I'm your next job, I'm your finances, I'm your dwelling place, I'm your peace, I'm your joy, I'm your direction, I'm your love, I'm your faith, I'm your self-control, I'm your mental stability, I am your physical strength. I am your mercy seat. I am your intercessor. I am your high priest. I am the door. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the son of God. I'm the son of man. I'm the creator. I'm the sustainer. I'm the everlasting father. I'm the mighty God. I'm Emmanuel. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm the husband of the church. I'm the true vine. I'm the root and the offspring of David. I'm the holy God. I'm your teacher. I'm your companion. I'm your enjoyment. I am your future. He said, then I heard, I am your eyesight. He said, which meant a lot to me because I had an incurable eye disease that was going to leave me completely blind. I will see for you. He said, I'm your hearing. I am all of your senses. I am your IQ, I am your clean conscience, I'm your voice of praise, I'm your baptizer, I'm your glorious king, I'm faithful and true, I'm your salvation, and I am your hope. So he, he spoke to me, and he reminded me. And he said, I, he said I, I, like I say, that's a very partial two-minute list. He said, I'm sure I could think of more if I took the time, but it could never duplicate what he said to me. You name it, it was on his list of everything that he is for me. And many of the things he said I had never thought of before. He said, so these days and from that day forward, I referred to that. That was my bathtub revival. So what I've been praying for you, friends. Today would be the day of your bathtub revival. That you would see and experience God in the ways that Moses did. The way that he did did and you won't miss it like the religious leaders did God right in front of them and they missed it 
We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.